Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joan Windle, Hampshire, Illinois. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuntz. Chapter 7 Religious Uses of Precious Stones, Pagan, Hebrew, and Christian. The use of stones for the decorations of images of the gods and in religious ceremonies, more especially in those connected with the burial of the dead, can be traced back to a remote antiquity. Indeed, we may regard this religious use of precious or peculiar stones as the natural development of the original idea of their talismanic virtue. If a certain supernatural essence manifested itself in the stone, what more fit object could be imagined for the decoration of statues of the gods? or to bear engraved texts from the sacred writings, and be placed with the bodies of the dead as passports to ensure the safe entry of the souls of the departed into the better land. While this employment of mineral substances for religious purposes is practically universal, the earliest recorded instances come from Egypt, and concern the Egyptian custom of engraving texts from a very ancient ritual composition called the Book of the Dead, upon certain semi-precious stones which had been cut into various symbolical forms. This Book of the Dead, composed of a number of distinct chapters, each complete in itself, describes the passage of the soul of the deceased through the realm of the dead, Amenti. Here the soul addresses the gods and other beings who receive it, and the prayers and invocations recited in the chapters are supposed to procure a safe passage and protection from all evil influences or impediments. One of the most unusual of the engraved amulets is the buckle or tie, that. This was generally of red jasper, carnelian, or red porphyry, or else of red glass or faience, or of sycamore wood. The wood was symbolical of the blood of Isis, and the amulets were sometimes engraved with the 156th chapter of the Book of the Dead. They were placed on the mummy's neck. The formula engraved reads, chapter of the buckle of carnelian which is put on the neck of the deceased the blood of isis the virtue of isis the magic power of isis the magic power of the eye are protecting this the great one they prevent any wrong being done to him this chapter is said on a buckle of carnelian dipped into the juice of ankama inlaid into the substance of the sycamore wood and put on the neck of the deceased Whoever has this chapter read to him, the virtue of Isis protects him. Horus, the son of Isis, rejoices in seeing him, and no way is barred to him unfailingly. Another amulet is the Tet. The hieroglyph represents a mason's table, and the word signifies firmness, stability, preservation. These figures, made of faience, gold, carnelian, lapis lazuli, and other materials, were placed on the neck of the mummy to afford protection. The papyrus scepter, what, is usually cut from matrix emerald or made of faience of similar hue. What means verdure, flourishing, greenness. Placed on the neck of the mummy, it was regarded as emblematic of the eternal youth it was hoped the deceased would enjoy in the realm of the dead. In the 159th chapter of the Book of the Dead, we read of an what of matrix emerald, it was believed to be the gift of Thoth, serving to protect the limbs of the deceased. The amulet representing the pillow, earth, 
was generally made of hematite. The 166th chapter of the Book of the Dead is sometimes engraved thereon. Dr. Budge renders this as follows. Rise up from non-existence, O prostrate one. They watch over thy head at the exalted horizon. Thou overthrowest thine enemies. Thou triumphest over what they do against thee, as Horus, the avenger of his father, this Osiris, has commanded to be done for thee. Thou cuttest off the heads of thine enemies. Never shall they carry off from thee thy head. Verily, Osiris maketh slaughter at the coming forth of the heads of his enemies. May they never remove his head from him. Of all these amulets, the type most frequently encountered has the shape of a heart, ab. These are found of carnelian, green jasper, basalt, lapis lazuli, and other hard materials. The heart, regarded in ancient Egypt as the seat of life, was the object of a special care after death. Enclosed in a special receptacle, it was buried with the mummy, and the belief was that only after it had been weighed in the balance of the underworld against the symbol of law could it regain its place in the body of the deceased. The heart was symbolically represented by a scarab. A fine example of a heart amulet shows on one side the figure of the goddess Neith with the penu bird or phoenix, an emblem of the resurrection, and bears inscribed the chapter of the heart. The following extract from the Book of the Dead treats of the formula to be recited over a funeral scarab cut from a hard stone, perhaps the lapis lazuli. Egyptian tradition assigned this chapter to the reign of Semti, the fifth king of the first dynasty, about 4400 BC, chapter of not allowing a man's heart to oppose him in the divine regions of the netherworld. My heart, which came from my mother, my heart, necessary for my existence on earth, do not rise up against me. Do not testify as an adversary against me among the divine chiefs in regard to what I have done before the gods. Do not separate from me before the great lord of Amenti. Hail to thee, O heart of Osiris, dwelling in the west. Hail to you, gods of the braided beard, august by your scepter. Speak well of the Osiris, and make him prosper by Nebka. I am reunited with the earth. I am not dead in Amenti. There I am a pure spirit for eternity. To be said over a scarabaeus fashioned from a hard stone, coated with gold, and placed on the heart of the man after he has been anointed with oil. The following words should be said over him as a magic charm. My heart, which came from my mother, my heart is necessary for me in my transformations. Take your aliments, pass around the turquoise basin, and go to him who is in his temple, and from whom the gods proceed. The most ancient inscription of this especially favorite text is on the plinth of a scarab in the British Museum, bearing the cartouche of Sibak M. Saf, a king of the 14th dynasty, 2300 B.C. It is made from an exceptionally fine piece of green jasper, the body and head of the beetle being carefully carved out of the stone, while the legs are of gold carved in relief. The scarab is inserted into a gold base of tabloid form and was found at Kurna, Thebes, by Mr. Salt. As green jasper was believed to possess altogether exceptional virtues as an amulet, this particular scarab was probably regarded as especially sacred. It appears to have been the rule to engrave certain special chapters of the Book of the Dead, among those referring to the heart, upon particular stones. Thus, for instance, the twenty-sixth chapter was engraved on lapis lazuli, the twenty-seventh upon feldspar, 
the thirtieth upon serpentine, and the twenty-ninth upon carnelian. This may perhaps have been originally due to some association of the god principally invoked in the text with the precious substance upon which the text was engraved. The form of an eye, fashioned out of lapis lazuli and ornamented with gold, constituted an amulet of great power. It was inscribed with the 140th chapter of the Book of the Dead. On the last day of the month, Meshir, an offering of all things good and holy, was to be made before this symbolic eye, for on that day the supreme god Ra was believed to place such an image upon his head. Sometimes those eyes were made of jasper, and could then be laid upon any of the limbs of a mummy. Of the image of truth, made from a lapis lazuli and worn by the Egyptian high priest, Alien aptly says that he would prefer the judge should not bear truth about with him, fashioned and expressed in an image, but rather in his very soul. Among the Assyrian texts giving the formulae for incantations and various magical operations, there is one which treats of an ornament composed of seven brilliant stones to be worn on the breast of the king as an amulet. Indeed, so great was the virtue of these stones that they were supposed to constitute an ornament for the gods also. The text, as rendered by Fossey, is as follows. Incantation The splendid stones, the splendid stones, the stones of abundance and joy, made resplendent for the flesh of the gods. The Hualini stone, the Sigaru stone, the Hulalu stone, the Sandu stone, the Uknu stone, the Dushu stone, the precious stone El Meshu, perfect in celestial beauty the stone of which the pingu is set in gold, placed upon the shining breast of the king as an ornament. Azaksud, high priest of Baal, make them shine, make them sparkle, let the evil one keep aloof from the dwelling. The names of these two gems, the Hulalu and the Hulalini, suggest that they were of a similar class. As the fundamental meaning of the root whence the names are formed is to perforate, it is barely possible that we have here the long-sought Assyrian designation for the pearl, which was commonly regarded in ancient times as a stone. In Arabic, the perforated pearl has a special name to distinguish it from the unperforated, or virgin pearl. All we know of the sandu is that it must have been a dark-colored stone. The uknu, however, is almost certainly the lapis lazuli. It is often mentioned in the Tel el Amarna tablets as having been among the gifts sent by the kings of Babylonia and Assyria to the pharaohs of Egypt, and also by the latter to friendly Asiatic monarchs. Of the Sirgaru and the Dushu stones nothing is known, but the El Mashu, the seventh in the list, was evidently regarded as the most brilliant and splendid of all. Indeed, Professor Frederick Delich hazards the conjecture that it is the diamond. In any case, this stone must have been set in rings and considered very valuable, for in an Assyrian text occurs the following passage, Like an Elmeshu ring, may I be precious in thine eyes. The fact that this stone is described as having a celestial beauty might incline us to believe that it was a sapphire. The idea of this mystic ornament composed of seven gems probably originated in Babylonia, where the number seven was looked upon as especially sacred. As we shall see, there is some reason to attribute a Hindu origin to the nine gems, the covering of the king of Tyre, enumerated by Ezekiel, while the breastplate on the ephod of the Hebrew high priest with its twelve stones, symbolizing the twelve months of the year, 
appears to be of later date and seems to belong to the time of the return from the Babylonian captivity and the building of the second temple. Certainly the historic and prophetic books of the Old Testament know nothing of it, although the Urim and Thummim are mentioned and the elaborate description given in Exodus is generally regarded by biblical scholars as belonging to the so-called priestly codex, the latest part of the Pentateuch, gradually evolved during the exile and given its final form in the 5th century. In the very ancient Assyrio-Babylonian epic narrative of the descent of the goddess Ishtar to Hades, the guardian of the infernal regions obliges the goddess to lay aside some part of her clothing and ornaments at each of the seven gates through which she passes. At the fifth we are told that she stripped off her girdle of Aben Aladi, or stones which aided parturition. It has been asserted, and perhaps with some reason, that of the many mineral substances supposed to possess this virtue, jade, nephrite, or jadeite, was the earliest known. The Babylonian legends also tell of trees on which grow precious stones. In the Gilgamesh epoch, a mystic cedar tree is described. This grew in the Elamite sanctuary of Arnina and was under the guardianship of the Elamite king Humbaba. Of this tree, an inscription relates, It produces Samtu stones as fruit. Its boughs hang with them, glorious to behold. The crown of it produces lapis lazuli. Its fruit is costly to gaze upon. Another tree bearing precious stones was seen by the hero Gilgamesh after he had passed through darkness for the space of twelve hours. This must have been a most resplendent object to judge from the following description on a cuneiform tablet. It bore precious stones for fruits. Its branches were glorious to the sight. The twigs were crystals. It bore fruit costly to the sight. One of the rarest and most significant specimens illustrating the use of valuable stones for religious ceremonial purposes in the pagan world is in the Morgan Tiffany collection. It is an ancient Babylonian axe head made of banded agate. So regular, indeed, is the disposition of the layers in this agate that one might be justified in denominating it an onyx. Its prevailing hue is what may be called a deer brown. Some white splotches now apparent are evidently due to the action of fire or that of some alkali. This axe head bears an inscription in archaic cuneiform characters, and presumably in the so-called Sumerian tongue, that believed to have been spoken by the founders of the Babylonian civilization. The form of the inscription indicates that the object dates from an earlier period than 2000 BC. While the characters are clearly cut and can be easily deciphered, the inscription is nevertheless exceedingly difficult to translate. It is evident that the axe head was a votive offering to a divinity, probably on the part of a certain governor named, named Adagish. But whether the divinity in question was Shamash, the sun god, or the god Adad, or some other member of the Babylonian pantheon, cannot be determined with any finality. The French Assyriologist, François Lenormand, who first described this axe head in 1879, and Professor Ira Maurice Price of the Semitic Department of Chicago University, both admit that it may have been consecrated to Adad. As the weather god, the thunderer, the axe symbol would have been more especially appropriate to him in view of the usage, almost universal among primitive peoples, of associating stone axe heads or axe-shaped stones with the thunderbolt, and hence with the divinity who is believed to have launched it toward earth. 
The Sumerian axe head measures 134.5 millimeters in length, 5.3 inches, 35.5 millimeters in width, 1.4 inches, and 31 millimeters in thickness, 1.22 inches. It was originally secured by Cardinal Stefano Borgia, 1731-1804, to for some time secretary of the College of the Propaganda in Rome, who probably acquired it from some missionary to the east. From the Cardinal's family it passed for 15,000 lira, $3,000, to the Tischkowitz collection, and when the objects therein comprised were disposed of at a public sale, the writer purchased it for the American Museum of Natural History in New York, April 16, 1902. In Alicante, in Spain, cut upon the pedestal of an ancient statue, supposed to have been that of Isis, was found an inscription giving a list of the offerings dedicated by divine command by a certain Fabia Fabiana in honor of her granddaughter. Evidently the fond grandmother had given of her best and choicest jewels which were used to adorn the statue. They consisted of a diadem set with a unio, a large round pearl, and six smaller pearls, two emeralds, seven barrels, two rubies, and a hyacinth. In each ear of the statue was inserted an earring, bearing a pearl and an emerald. About the neck was hung a necklace consisting of four rows of emeralds and pearls, eighteen of the former and thirty-six of the latter. Two circlets bound round the ankles contained eleven barrels and two emeralds, while two bracelets were set with eight emeralds and eight pearls. The adornment was completed by four rings, two bearing emeralds, while two, placed on the little finger, were set with diamonds. On the sandals were eight barrels. A notable instance of an antique votive offering is the necklace of valuable precious stones dedicated to the statue of Vesta. The Byzantine historian Zosimus attributes the tragic end of Stilicho's widow, Serena, to her having despoiled the image of Vesta of this costly ornament, and finds a sort of poetic justice in the manner of her death, since she was strangled by a cord which encircled her neck. End of chapter 7, part 1